For the first time in a few weeks, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew 24. Over the last several weeks, uh, we've been through uh, Palm Sunday and then Easter, and uh, last week, Charlie Rutledge very helpfully took us through what it looked like to live in the eternal, the encouragement that uh, through repentance and salvation, uh, that real change is possible as we fix our eyes on what God has said to be true. Um, but that means that we haven't been in Matthew's gospel for the last several weeks. And so we're going to take something of a run-up to our passage today. But uh, I want to read Matthew 24, uh, verse 3, all the way down to verse 14, because it's the beginning of the answer that Jesus gives over the next two chapters. So we'll just kind of set the stage, and then we'll build a big porch and then dive into our passage for today. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Let's pray. Lord, we have a difficult time wrapping our minds around the day-to-day, let alone thinking about the end. But Lord, I pray that as we're a people that are convinced and convicted of the importance of what is coming, that it impacts our daily lives. That as we look through your word, that you would show us that you have given us these things to give us a hope and a great purpose and a sense of urgency because the King is coming again. Lord, so we ask today that you would open our eyes so that we might see wonderful things in your word, that through the power of your spirit, you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that you would help us to live in light of the fact that at the end of all things, the king comes again. So Lord, we ask that you would be gracious, open our eyes, open our ears, empower our steps so that we might be pleasing to you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I said, we kind of got to back up a little bit because if we lose the context of where we're at, uh, Matthew 24 and 25 in particular become very, very difficult to kind of piece together. Uh, So Matthew 24 and 25 are what we call the Olivet Discourse. It is the last major chunk of teaching that Jesus gives before the cross, the last long teaching portion in the book of Matthew. And in order to get there, we have to remember that a couple of things have changed in Matthew's gospel. For one thing, the emphasis of Jesus' teaching has changed with regard to who he is talking to. He is spending more and more time over the last half of the gospel with his disciples, instructing them, preparing them. Does he still talk to the crowds? Absolutely. He's done that over the last two days of this Passion Week in and around the temple. But more and more of his time is devoted to preparing the disciples. And the content of what he's preparing them for has shifted. Repent for the kingdom is at hand has given way to this idea that the kingdom is coming, but it's delayed. We saw that in the parables. We've seen it in his teaching. But even over the last several chapters, that emphasis on kingdom has picked up. 
He's talked about what it takes to get in the kingdom, what it takes to be great in the kingdom. He's talked about what that kingdom will anticipate for those who have abandoned everything to follow him. The people want a king. They want the prominence, the prestige, the provision of the kingdom, but they want to enter that kingdom on their own terms. But Jesus did not come to offer political asylum from Rome. He came at this time to defeat sin and death and to call people into his kingdom through a righteousness that they could never have on their own. And the disciples are sitting in the midst of all this as real people. We tend to forget that. They become kind of Sunday school characters that happen in a systematic theology somewhere that should have or shouldn't have done certain things. But these are men fighting with expectations and anticipations and their own experiences. And there are some things that have led up to this that make a whole lot of sense that Jesus has come into Jerusalem with power and authority, that he is loved by the crowds, that he's taken possession of his temple, that he's healed and that he's cleansed, that he's absolutely silenced the ignorance and the arrogance of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And in some ways, it seems like the kingdom must be so close they can almost taste it. And that is good news for them. Because Jesus has said, when the Son of Man sits on his throne, you also will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, his exaltation is their exaltation as well. But there's a lot of this that does not fit. Because he's told them he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. He hasn't said anything about removing the Roman authority there. If he's the promised king, then why is it that the end of chapter 23 is this lament over Jerusalem? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who, you who kill the prophets, how long and how often I've wanted to gather you together, but you refused. Your house is being left to you desolate. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the start of chapter 24, when they point out the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty of that temple complex, and he says it's all coming down. And they just struggle, I think, to put all these pieces together. And so in the midst of that anticipation and that hope and that confusion, they ask that question in verse 3, tell us, when will these things be? Jesus, if all of this is going to happen, when is it going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They connect his coming with the end of the age. And they say, tell us, when is this going to happen? And how are we going to know that it is happening? And then when we went through verses 3 through 8, we saw the first part of that answer. And the heart of his answer is not initially to give details, although he will do that. He's going to tell them specifically the signs that accompany the end of the age and the anticipation of his coming. But the first part of this answer drives them forward to understand that it is not now. Even at the very beginning of the book of Acts, after his death, burial, resurrection, and 40 days of teaching them specifically about the kingdom, they ask, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom? They are a kingdom now mindset. And he is making them understand that things must happen first. So as we move into verses 9 through 14 today, We're picking up on that same answer, the same line of reasoning. The king is coming. The Messiah will return, but it's not yet. Not only are there going to be famines and earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, today we're going to go through the idea that Jesus says there's a promise of persecution that is going to come. And he begins by describing this coming trouble. Verse 9 opens the understanding of what is coming with trouble, and it talks about physical dangers that are going to accompany these people. 
He says, then, at that time, when these birth pangs are happening and when they are increasing, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, that doesn't make sense. We say, sure it does, because we know the end of the story. We know the book, but understand, if the disciples are in the presence of the king of all kings, and if you are associated with the greatest king to ever live, whoever would live, then to be associated with that kind of king should bring great honor. If you are a messenger or an ambassador of a great political figure, there is great honor that accompanies that. And Jesus said, you are going to go out as my ambassadors, but you are not going to receive a warm welcome. You're going to be hated. You're going to be hated for my sake. As the earth groans under the weight of sin, as the stain of sin becomes more and more pronounced, as you get closer and closer to the end, and ultimately this all kind of telescopes to the very end, as this happens, there's only going to be increased tribulation, trial, and hatred. And that word tribulation gets very, very loaded when we start talking about eschatology in the end times. For right now, for this context, understand that tribulation means trial or trouble. It means distress. And they need to understand, the disciples need to understand, these disciples need to understand, we need to understand, and those that are alive immediately before the coming of Christ need to understand that friendship with Jesus leads you to enmity with the world. That to be identified with Jesus means that you cannot be clearly identified with the world, and that brings conflict. And this isn't the first time that they've heard that. You go back to Matthew chapter 10, in fact, flip back there just a few pages, to Matthew chapter 10, and you see an almost parallel statement there. In Matthew chapter 10, he's preparing to send them out on that first missionary ministry journey that he's prepared for them. And in verse 16, he says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, don't be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, the father his child, the children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, as we read through the rest of Matthew 24, that is going to sound very, very familiar. But in that context, it feels a little bit out of place because in Matthew 10, he limited where he sent them out. He said, you're to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said, don't go to the Samaritans. He says, don't go to the Gentiles. So what is he talking about with kings persecuting them, with them being brought before courts and all the nations? He's preparing them even then for what is coming next. And that idea that the gospel is going to go out to the Jew first, but then to the Gentile and the rest of the world, is really what Matthew's gospel ends on. We know the Great Commission passage, that he sends them not only to Israel, but to the whole world. And he reminds them that as the gospel goes out, it is not met with a welcoming ear by a sinful world. That if you anticipate an immediate coming of a kingdom and all the honor and glory that goes with that, all the welcome and acceptance that goes along with that, you will find bitter disappointment as you meet a world that does not view the Savior the same way that you do. 
and maybe even more painful, there's an, an additional danger that he talks about in verse 10. Back in Matthew 24, verse 10, he says, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. There's not only danger uh, from a world that hates the gospel, there's also danger from those that even profess to be fellow Christ followers. Some are going to reject you and hate you because you're identified with Christ, and some will fall away. Some won't be able to stand during that time of testing and trouble and tribulation. And again, it's not the first time that they've heard that. They heard that in Matthew chapter 10. But Jesus even illustrated that as he talked to them about the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. You remember the very first parable that he told them was the parable of the sower and the seeds and the soils. And some of the seed falls on the path and it's immediately snatched away by birds and some falls on rocky ground where it springs up immediately but has no depth, no root, so the sun scorches it. Some falls among the thorns and it grows up for a little while, but then it's choked out. And some falls on good soil and it ends up bearing fruit. And as he goes through and as he explains that parable later on in Matthew 13, he says that that seed that falls on the rocky ground and it immediately shoots up is like the one who hears the kingdom message and immediately responds with joy. But when testing and trial come, when tribulation and distress come, they fall away because there's no deep root, because there's no real reception of the kingdom. They endure for a while, but trouble and persecution end up proving that the gospel never really landed and took root in their heart. See, it's important to understand here in Matthew 24, as Jesus says there's a trouble coming, a distress that is coming that is going to sift people it is not that it drives them away from a genuine faith. It's that this testing and trial and tribulation reveals what was never real in the first place. But not only will they fall away, they're going to betray one another and hate one another. They're going to demonstrate that they hate those who follow Christ. In just a couple of days from when Jesus is talking, he'll be gathered in the upper room with his disciples. And in John 13, as he's gathered in that upper room, he tells them, a new command I'm giving to you. Love one another. Then he goes on to say, it's by this love that all men are going to know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, the idea of loving one another is going to be this consistent characteristic of people that belong to Christ. And here you have people that are going to betray and hate one another, demonstrating that they never belong to Christ. And if you're the disciples, again, if you are one of these men standing trying to process this, you've got to think they're wondering, how could that happen? How could someone know Jesus, claim to follow Jesus? How could you be a disciple and then turn your back on that? Well, they've started to see a shift in the crowds. But remember, who else is standing among them here on this hillside overlooking the temple? Judas is there. And Judas has seen what they have seen, and Judas has experienced what they have experienced. Judas has seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Judas has seen Jesus quiet the wind and the waves with a word. But Judas is going to fall away because this isn't the kind of king and kingdom that he signed up for. He doesn't want any part of persecution and trouble. He doesn't want a Messiah that calls for peace and for patience in the midst of trial and struggle. He wants a kingdom 
He wants power, he wants the exaltation, but he doesn't want this kind of king and this kind of kingdom. And so even one of the 12 will fall away and will actively betray the king himself. And he'll prove in some ways to be a model for those that continue and continue to come after him until Christ returns. So there's a danger coming from persecution and a danger even from those who fall away. But now Jesus is going to move on and speak of the danger of deception. Look at verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. There are those who are going to come and they are going to claim to speak with the authority and even the very words of God, and they are going to be successful in leading many astray. Why is it that false prophets have such a track record of success? Why is it that the warnings in the Bible from beginning to end really are so consistent to be on guard, to be aware, to guard the truth, to know the truth, and to be aware of false teaching and false prophets and their deception? And I think it's because we are so easily drawn to what we want to hear. At our core, we are a people that are easily deceived because my heart desperately wants to hear the things that make it feel better. And this is true in all aspects of our lives. We listen to what we want to hear. Even social media knows this. We read through our Facebook feeds. If you're from my generation, apparently that's passe now. But your social media feed is not a random conglomeration of information that makes you a well-rounded individual. They are designed to continue feeding you what you spend time looking at. And so we consider ourselves the most well-informed generation in history when really confirmation bias is all that we've increased and uh, we tend to see more and more of what we want to see. And if that's true with my political feed, how much more so those influences in our spiritual life? Why is it that there are megachurches of tens of thousands of people that are built around terrible doctrine? Well, because if you're going to tell me that I can have peace and prosperity and health and wealth now, I want to hear that. If you're going to tell me that it's only those who lack faith that experience trouble and trials, I want to hear that because then there's a way for my life to feel better, to look better right now. And yet, what has Jesus said? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He said, if they hated me, certainly they will hate you. As time stretches on, as the kingdom is delayed, if your hope is in a kingdom right now, if your hope is in a world that looks more and more like the kingdom, you are going to come to bitter disappointment. Jesus said that there are those who are going to come and they're going to capitalize on that desire to see life be what I never promised that it would. And then in verse 12, he gives kind of the last warning about the danger, the troubles that are to come. And this one's the trouble really of disinterest, coldness. It says, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Because when you expect something to get better and it never does, that's disappointing, that's disheartening, that's discouraging. And as the kingdom is delayed, as the world gets more and more wicked, the love, the passion, the fervor of many is going to grow cold. And as you move toward the end, when there is a huge intensifying of all of these difficulties, it's going to mark itself in this way like at no other point in human history. A growing cold of love. A fire that has become embers that have turned to ashes. 
And at some point, if you can't beat the world, the thinking is you might as well join the world. And what did Jesus say? What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law in Jesus' eyes. To love God and to love others. And now as it nears the end, love is going to grow cold. The difficulty, the struggle, the strife, the, the evil in the world is going to cause the love of many to grow cold. And we look at all those things, all those dangers, and again, we have to remember that there are real people hearing this. Disciples who have very high hopes. Disciples who have seen remarkable things, even in this week, that would, again, if it's me, lead me to think that this whole thing has to be ending on a high note right now. And now Jesus has said, not only is there going to be delay, but there's going to be significant trouble during that delay. And I think to hear that in some sense would lead, at least me, again, to a place where there's possibility of discouragement and maybe even despair. I think that's why he told them back in verse 6 not to be alarmed, but as we finish our passage today, I want us to see the hope that is embedded in this. This is a warning about trouble that is going to come, and the disciples are going to live lives that are characterized by trouble. Believers in the world now live lives that are characterized to some extent by trouble. There's coming a time prior to Christ's return where there will be trouble, as we see in a few verses, unlike any period in the world's history. And yet, this is not a message of hopelessness and despair. This is a message that has great comfort in it. And it's not comfort that's a pat on the head saying, there, there, everything will be okay. It's comfort that is grounded in truth. It's comfort that's grounded in certain realities that are absolutely sure and certain to take place. And the first thing that ought to bring us comfort, that ought to bring them comfort, that will continue to bring people comfort, is the certain promise of endurance. There is an endurance that is sure to happen. Look at verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. There's going to be a time of trouble. There's going to be many who fall away and many who are led astray. But those who endure to the end are going to be saved. And he said, that's not really comforting to know that if I don't make it to the end, I'm not going to be saved. That doesn't sound like a very uplifting message. How does that help? Well, for one thing, we have to remember that trouble and trial and testing never drive anyone out of the kingdom. They don't do that. They have a way of revealing what is already true. They have a way of proving and refining faith. Trouble and trial and distress don't destroy faith. Again, you go back to that picture in Matthew 13 in the soils. It was not that the trouble and the rocky soil made them, have, uh, made them wither. It was the fact that they withered because they showed that they had no root. If you were to go to 1 John chapter 2, John puts it this way. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out so that it might become plain that they were not all of us. In other words, the proof of a real heart change is endurance. Endurance proves the genuine heart change that the gospel brings. What proved that Judas was not a genuine disciple of Christ? It was the fact that he did not endure. And now we hear that word endurance, and in our minds, it kind of this grinding, grit it out until the end. 
It's not the New Testament picture of endurance. When I think of endurance, I picture my kids who are runners. Uh, I picture Nathan who ran his last two-mile race of the season yesterday and all the miles that those little legs put on them and all the practices so that he might perform well. See, endurance in the New Testament is this continual training that builds endurance toward a specific and known end. In other words, endurance isn't a burden. Endurance is a joyful result of something. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, he says, We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. It's a picture of rejoicing even in suffering, which makes no sense from the world's perspective. But Paul says we can look at suffering and trial and trouble, and we can not only approach it like we're going to get through it. It's not only a neutral thing, it's something that we can rejoice in because it produces things of eternal value, endurance, character, hope. It's why Peter, who hears Jesus say this, will later on write to a struggling, suffering church in 1 Peter, and he'll say, in this, in 1 Peter chapter 1, in this you rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Peter comes to the point where he understands that testing and trial have a way of refining and proving and purifying faith that is there. It weeds out false professions of faith and it refines and makes even more pure and more precious genuine faith. Does that mean that trials and testing are easy? Absolutely not. But it does mean that what they produce brings reward and honor at the coming of Christ. See, Peter even puts that suffering in the context of the coming of Christ that they endure for. And again, be reminded in all of this, the fact that Jesus says those who endure to the end will be saved is a testimony to the saving and keeping power of God because if it were up to the disciples to persevere and endure, none of them would. Peter will provide a visible demonstration of that in the coming chapters. If it were up to you and I to endure and to hang on to the faith that we have, none of us would. As you look forward to the coming time of trouble and tribulation during the worst points in human history prior to the coming of Christ in power and glory, if it were up to those precious people to endure until the end, none would stand. But the fact that some endure, that some remain, is a testimony to the fact that God not only calls his people, but that God keeps his people. That God not only knows the suffering, but he knows the time of their suffering and he maintains their endurance. And we'll actually see that in the coming verses. And the next promise that he deals with is not only the fact that there is a certain endurance that comes, but there is a certain and a sure effectiveness, particularly with relation to the gospel message. Look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Again, who is hearing this firsthand from Jesus? It is the disciples, fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, men who have a very limited understanding of the world. 
They know Galilee. They've been back and forth to Jerusalem. They know the land of Israel. But to think in uh, terms of the whole world is really not something that is common to a first century mind. You and I can travel the world in a matter of days. It would have taken a lifetime for them to progress from one end of the empire to the other with this kind of message, and it did. But now Jesus says this gospel is going to be preached to the whole world. And if we stopped at verses 9 through 12, if we stopped at the fact that Jesus said they're going to hate you and kill you, if we stopped at the fact that he said false prophets are going to lead many astray, if we stopped at the place where he said that the love of many is going to grow cold, then it sounds maybe like this whole thing has all been for nothing. Like this gospel mission is doomed to fail, verses like this remind us that it's not. That the hatred of the world does not limit the spread of the gospel. That the rebellion and the dissension, even within the ranks of professing disciples, do not hinder the gospel work. That trial and trouble and persecution and love grown cold will not stop God from calling a people unto himself. And you look and you see that this is exactly what is proven true over all of history. You read through the book of Acts, and trouble comes quickly on the church. Persecution comes quickly, and the church thrives. You look through all of church history, from the persecution under the emperors of Rome to the persecution of Christians under governments and dictators even today, and what do you see? The church thrives. In fact, in some of those places where it is the most difficult to be a believer, you have the most remarkable testimonies of God's persevering and preserving endurance to his people. Remarkable testimonies of joy and peace and encouragement and ministry done through the Spirit in these places where we would think that the gospel would be stamped out. And you and I have the blessing of seeing this promise, even God's faithfulness in a way that the disciples could only anticipate because you and I can actually look around the world and see churches formed and established everywhere. You and I give a portion of our money to support missionaries who work hard at presenting the gospel and translating the gospel into language and peoples, into places where it's never been before. And it's a remarkable thing. And not only that, but you and I can look forward and we can see God's clear end in all of this. We can go to places like Revelation chapter 7. And in verses 9 through 12 of Revelation chapter 7, this is what John writes. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And if you keep reading in Revelation 7, that group of people are said to be those that come out of this great tribulation. In other words, in the worst time in human history, the gospel not only thrives, it explodes across the world. There is great hope 
in the promise of God's gospel doing exactly what he said it would. And then in that very last short phrase of verse 14, there's a final encouraging promise, and that is the certainty of the end. Jesus said it will go as a testimony to all the nations, and then he says, and then the end will come. In other words, the end does not come until the gospel has done its work. The end will not come until everyone that God has called to himself is safely within the fold. The end does not come until God's people have heard the saving message of Jesus Christ. In other words, God does not lose one person whose name is written in the book of life. Isn't that good news? That wars and rumors of wars, famine, trouble, trial, persecution, that's not the last word. The last word is that God does his work. And even the fact that there is an end is a comfort. That this is not the kingdom. That this is not the world we anticipate. That this is not the extent of justice and righteousness under Christ's rule. That there is an end that is coming. That God does not sit in heaven fretting about the state of his creation, wondering why, oh why, things turned out this way. And if only somehow his creation would cooperate, things would look like they ought to. No. The Lord sits in heaven and he delays because he is patient, not willing that any should perish. That's 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, sit at my right hand until your enemies are made a footstool. That's Psalm 2. patient delay and a final until and every day every hour every moment is ordained and will flow exactly as the sovereign God dictates Man, it's one thing to know that my individual life is in his hands that he knows the number of breaths that I'll take the number of hairs on my head that is one thing it is quite another thing to understand that he holds the scope of human history in his hand and that he will consummate it at exactly the right moment. Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 are going to throw some interpretive challenges our way. They're going to be places where people, good people, godly people, even people within this local body disagree on some of the details. But there are some things that we need to be firmly on the same page on. There are some things that are non-negotiable And two of those non-negotiables are this, that God is faithful and that God is sovereign, that God will do exactly what he promised he would do because he has the absolute power and authority to do it. And if that's the God that we worship, a God who has a plan for all things and a God who has the ability to make those plans a reality, then it had better change the way that we live. Our understanding of what's coming is only as good as its impact on our daily lives. Because knowing that persecution is here and that will continue and even increase might sound discouraging, but when we understand that suffering identifies us with Christ and purifies our faith, then it's not something to be feared. Knowing that endurance to the end is required might sound daunting, but knowing that it's God who guides and guards and keeps his people brings security even in the call for endurance. Knowing that the end is coming sounds pessimistic or maybe even alarmist to the world around us, but what a beautiful security for the believer 
to know that when we sing simple songs like he has the whole world in his hands, that has remarkable implications. That our days, our times, and in fact the days and times of the whole of human history are under his sovereign, powerful, just, merciful care. So if this is written in anticipation of the end, and if we live here somewhere before the end, what kind of people should we be in light of this? First of all, we had better be a people that see the blessing of trouble. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but when I entertain and when I encounter trouble, my first instinct is to move out of it, to limit what hurts or to excuse what I've done to cause trouble. You and I have the opportunity to be a people who see trouble, even something as painful as persecution, rejection, betrayal, is something that refines our faith, something that has eternal good. And here's the other side of that. If we, you and I, live and walk in this world and they never see us as different enough to persecute, we had better ask why. Because we have been called out of the world and into a kingdom, as citizens of a kingdom, that makes us look very, very different from the world around us. Secondly, we have to be a people who recognize the gift of endurance. We need to be reminded that the church is never undone by trial or trouble, that believers' individual lives are never unraveled by persecution or heartache. That's important to hear because we either have been, are currently, or will be brought to the place where we are utterly at the end of our own resources. I'm sure you know what it's like to be in that place where you do not have the strength to take the next step. And sometimes you don't even know what that next step would be if you were strong enough to take it. We need to be a people who take comfort in the fact that it is God who calls and establishes and carries his people. That we're called to pursue obedience one day at a time and that God equips us and guides us for exactly what we need to honor him. And finally, we had better have the certainty of the future always before us. Because this world always looks about a half a step away from being completely out of control. How different we could be if we lived with the hope and a secure understanding that what was coming next was not accidental, was not up to chance and time and circumstances and politics, but that what was coming next is only what the sovereign God of all creation allowed and ordained for his glory and for our good. We would be a people who would live confidently, who would proclaim the gospel boldly, who would live humbly. In other words, we would be a people who are wholly different than the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, the fact that the end is coming shouldn't drive us to despair. It shouldn't drive us to pessimism. It shouldn't drive us to isolation as we wait. Lord, understanding that the end is coming should provoke our hearts to hope and to joy, knowing that the King is coming again. Lord, it should provoke us to ministry, to mission that calls others to faith, to repent, to believe, to give their lives to Christ while they still have life and breath. Lord, make us a people who are patient in our endurance. For those that are tired and weary, for those that are brokenhearted, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them 
simply to take the next step. That we as a body would do well in bearing one another's burdens in encouraging the weak, strengthening the feeble, knowing that you are a God of justice and might and power, but of tender mercy and compassion. Lord, make us a people who wait anxiously for you. In Christ's name, amen. And as we wait, God has graciously given us means to remember what we wait for. And one of those is the celebration of communion, the Lord's Supper. And so as we prepare to take communion together, as we do every month, and as we've really been blessed to do a couple of times over the last month, uh, if you don't have the elements, the ushers will bring those to you. But just before we take communion together, I want to encourage you to just take a moment and in your hearts, come to the place where you prepare well to do this. If there's sin, confess it. If there's apathy, confess it. If there's discouragement, then be reminded of who it is that we love and serve. If you're not a believer, if you do not understand what I'm talking about, if this is nothing more than a cracker and juice to you, then I would encourage you, simply allow this to pass. I would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow after Christ. But for the moment, let's take a few moments in our hearts to quietly prepare, and then we'll come together and take communion in a moment. Lord, make us a people that are quick to repent, that are quick to humble ourselves before your word, quick to humble ourselves before one another, and quick to experience the joy of restoration that forgiveness brings. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes to that struggling church that he loves so dearly, and he says, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Lord, you did not figuratively deal with sin. You sent the Son to die for sinners. He took on flesh, found in the form of a servant, were made obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that I might not die in my sin. What a remarkable promise. Lord, we praise you for the sacrifice of the perfect lamb. Amen. And then going on, Paul writes, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Let's take the cup together. Let's pray. Lord, we do this until you come, until you call us home in death or until you call us to be with you. Lord, this is given as a constant reminder to a fickle and forgetful people. Lord, keep the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ always before us. And Lord, keep the return of Christ always before us. Let it drive our obedience. Let it drive our ministry. Let it drive our gospel presentation and proclamation to the nations. And Lord, what a comforting thing to know that you will do exactly what you said. You will save your people. You will cause them to endure, and you will come again. Lord, come quickly. Amen.